What you are about to hear is the second part of our interview with Mr. Eve Angler. If you missed the first part, you can go back using our channels, and、uh, we'll see you here back shortly. But but yeah, I mean that that's a conversation for another day. So now let's move on to Israel Palestine, which is all the rage.、Um, and actually, I want to start by talking a little bit about how how the media has really reported on it, because that's something that's been very prominent when in 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 the in Western like especially English language media, when it comes to covering the Israel Palestine conflict. So. Uh, in foreign policy, usually when you, you they've called their last like few years, I guess like、um, a, a frozen conflict. But anyone who's you know been on the ground or known about it knows that it's anything but a frozen conflict. The Israel uh, and uh, Palestine conflict、uh, I'm talking about. But the media, when when reporting on it during the recent you know、uh, whether you know we want to talk about the Israeli police、uh, invading Al Aqsa Mosque or the the Hamas rockets falling on Israeli cities. The media has portrayed it as like a, a clashes, war, flare-ups. Like the wording has very has been very you know like that basically, like showing that it was like a war, you know. But if if you look at the death death toll of any like Israeli Palestinian conflict, it's like thirty five to one. If, like third for every thir- like thirty ish Palestinians killed, there's one Israeli killed. So can you explain like why does the media report it like that? Well, the simple explanation is that、uh, Israel is、uh, aligned and close to、uh, the U.S.-led empire, and the the rules of the dominant media is that when it's countries that are allied with us or us doing it, the you know violence or human rights violations are downplayed, and when it's、um, countries that are you know、uh, in our in the crosshairs of Washington or Ottawa. The、uh, human rights violations are you know, well documented and often exaggerated.、Uh, in the case of、uh, Israel-Palestine, more specifically, it's、uh, you know Canada has has been totally tied into Zionism for、uh, a century, right? There were Canadians who helped conquer Palestine in 1917 for the British.、Uh, there were Canadians who Canada played a very important role in the creation of Israel in 1947 with the UN partition plan at the UN, which was highly, highly unjust, unjust for Palestinians, and there were Canadians who fought in 1947-48 to establish Israel and and、uh, ethnically cleanse it of、uh, 700,000 plus、uh, Palestinians.、Um, and right up until today, you have a、uh, government that is in, enabling Israeli apartheid in so many different ways in the Trudeau government, and.、Uh, And so you have、uh, little appetite uh, for um, for uh, criticism in the dominant media. You also have uh, a uh, a very effective uh, uh, pro-Israel lobby、um, that pushes back on the media. Right? You have Honest Reporting Canada, which is the best known of them, which is just basically a flak organization. It it, it for. You know, anti-Palestinian flak organization, where any time that any Canadian media outlet publishes something that's, you know, sort of truthful about the about Palestinian dispossession, or isn't completely、uh, subservient to the Israeli perspective, Honest Reporting Canada does one of their alerts, and they get people to email the the media outlet, and they you know put in a formal complaint, and they basically try to make、uh, life hell for the reporters or the editors that that.、Uh, You know, covered the issue in a way that they didn't like, 
and that that contributes um, to the uh, to the anti-Palestinian perspective in the dominant media. Uh, you know, there I mentioned um, uh, Concordia when Netanyahu was brought to uh, Concordia. That was brought. He was brought in by the uh, the Asper Foundation. Well, uh, Izzy Asper uh, owned the Montreal Gazette, the Ottawa Citizen, the National Post. I think it was about twelve different papers across the country. And Izzy Asper was open. I mean, he was a very aggressive anti-Palestinian. He passed away, it's, he, and that, that the company no longer owns uh, those, those news, news outlets. But um, uh, he was very aggressive. They, ins- they instituted a policy of writing editorials from the head office in Winnipeg when they, when they bought up uh, um, Ken West. And it, 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 one of the editorials uh, actually prompted the, uh, the editor or the head of the Montreal Gazette to, to, to quit because they were the head office in Winnipeg was forcing this like hard line anti-Palestinian perspective uh, onto the Montreal Gazette. Um, uh, there was instances, these were documented at the time, I, I talk about them in my book, uh, A Propaganda System, how Canada's government corporations and media sell war, war and exploitation. And they, they, there was wire copy from Reuters. So Reuters is a British uh, news agency, and there's wire copy stories written by, uh, you know, reporters on the ground in uh, in Israel or in the West Bank, and uh, and they rewrote the wire copy to like make it anti-Palestinian, right? So they just changed words, right? They, you know, they would, they, the journalists on the ground talked about clashes between, but I don't know, you know, I can't, I can't remember the exact words in front of me, but clashes between Israeli forces and rebels. And then they threw, instead of putting it rebels, they put in terrorists or, right? They just made it, made the, just changed the wire copy to make it even more anti-Palestinian. And they got caught doing that a number of times to the point where Reuters was complaining because Reuters is saying, hey, this is, you're basically just, you know, you're, you're lying, you're changing our story, but you're still putting Reuters as the, as the, as the source of the story. And, uh, and that's distorting, you know, what actually happened. So you know, this, it plays out, there's all kinds of, you know, specific elements. Yeah. When you have pro-Israel flak organization pressuring media, that has a fact, has an effect when, when there was this period of time when the, you know, this, one of the leading news conglomerates in the country was owned by the Aspers who were known for being, you know, incredibly anti-Palestinian. Well, that has a whole effect. More generally, the broader political culture has an effect. The fact that the, you know, the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs, uh, the main pro-Israel lobby group, B'nai B'rith, uh, Friends of Simon Weisenthal Center, the fact that they have, you know, over 100 employees at those organizations where the pro-Palestinian organizations in the country have maybe, you know, four or five employees. Well, that has an effect, right? These, these are cumulative. They, they, you know, they play out within the political culture in general. They play out within the media. So a, a combination of, of Israel being a, a close ally that Canada has enabled its dispossession of Palestinians for you know, more than a century, that combined with it being Israel being close with the American empire, combined with the fact that you have this pro-Israel lobby that's well organized and, 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 and also has this powerful tool of playing victim. Right, the uh, labeling anyone who criticizes Israel as being anti-Semitic. So you have a situation where you have a well-organized pro-Israel lobby. Uh, you have you have many of these figures, people like Aspers, people the people who set up the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs, like um, uh, Heather Reisman and Jerry Schwartz, uh, the Tannenbaum family. These are you know these are billionaires, um, but they're simultaneously playing playing victim. Right, that it's like this is all all this criticism of Israel is 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 just because you don't like Jewish people. So you have a mix of alignment with empire, 
uh, uh, Canada being deeply complicit, uh, well-organized Israel lobby, and uh, the ability to uh, label you know opponents of Israeli policy as being uh, motivated by you know uh, anti-Jewish uh, animus, uh, that combined puts a lot of pressure on the media to to uh, uh, to follow a, a pro uh, pro-Israel uh, perspective. Yeah, I'm actually a little bit interested about about what you just said about uh, anti-Semitism, right? I mean, I'm sure that a lot of figures who are, you know, Zionist or otherwise would, would call you yourself anti-Semitic, right, for opposing... Um, they've, they've been doing it for 20 years. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, obviously, yeah. I mean, you, yeah, I mean I'm sure that, that a lot of people uh, would say you, you yourself are, are anti-Semitic. But the question I want to ask is because... When, as, as someone who has to, you know take, taken um, uh, in, in college has to, had to take uh, like uh, classes on like uh, gender studies and like inter- learn about intersectionality, the, the left is has very been aspi- has been aspiring that using that term and aspiring to it, saying that you're, like how your class, sexuality, like your different identities intersect and you know they basically multiply your oppression like into like orders of mag- mag- magnitude, right? Uh, but it seems that anti-Semitism falls into like this like really gray area where when someone calls some like the word you yourself have said that the word anti-Semitism in, in an article you're for the rabble, I think you said that it's overused. But do, do you think that that there is place uh, that, that for someone being Jewish can be victimized for being a Jew? Oh, for sure. I mean, probably the worst concentrated victimization of any people in the history of humanity was, you know, the Nazi Holocaust of, uh, and that was, I mean, not, it was, wasn't only Jewish people that were, were, were victimized, but they were the, you know, the far and away the worst victim. So for sure. And, and, you know, today there, there are instances where, I mean, you know, what happened in Pittsburgh a few years ago where the uh, synagogue got, got people got killed there and stuff. I mean, it's a clear example. I don't believe that from a structural standpoint, the Jewish community is uh, a victim of, uh, uh, you know, it's not, it's not an oppressed community. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't believe that. I think that the hate crimes, Jews are victims of uh, hate crimes far out of proportion with their proportion of the Canadian population. That's clear. It's exaggerated. What B'nai B'rith tells us and what, what gets reported on in the dominant media is exaggerated from the reality. But the reality is clear that 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 uh, Jewish people are substantially overrepresented in uh, in uh, you know hate crimes and, and uh, stuff like that. When you look at most other socioeconomic indicators, the ones we you know uh, discuss on you know most issues, whether it being you know increased. Uh, incarceration, whether it be income level, whether it be positions on the you know corporate boards, right? You'll find that on most of the you know whatever twenty main criteria that we usually use in sociological affairs, uh, you'll find that generally you know black people, indigenous people, they're in, overrepresented in 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 jail, uh, you know lower incomes on you know be many different of those indicators that they they are on the kind of lower rung of that's not the case with the Jewish community. Right. Uh, the, the only commonly used indicator that the Jewish community, and I say that with a little bit of hesitancy, cause I can't, I can't haven't you know, looked at every single indicator, but this is, you know, somewhat superficial, but 
the the main indicator that that Jews would be uh, overrepresented is with regards to hate crimes, not necessarily for you know uh, education levels, income levels, uh, higher rates of imprisonment, et cetera, et cetera. So so you know, and, and these these things become like they become like difficult kind of questions to deal with because you can't really talk about this stuff honestly, right? Like when the pro-Israel groups are accusing, uh, I don't know, McGill of being anti-Semitic, right? Because there's like some pro-Palestinian resolutions that have, have been passed by, uh, by the student union. When there's this like, you know, whole kind of like push against the, against, uh, you know, all these claims being made of anti-Semitism, if you come back and you say, well, you know what? No, the truth is, is that, you know, the Jewish community is not underrepresented at McGill. If anything, the Jewish community is probably overrepresented at McGill. When you come back and you and you sort of look at these issues in a in a you know statistical kind of way or in a dis, dispassionate way, that's viewed as anti-Semitism, right? They they view they view that as in itself a form of anti-Semitism. So it's a, they're, they're, they're difficult discussions and you're seeing it, you know, I mean, you're seeing it right now in terms of a really, you know, concrete, I mean, there's this, you know, violence taking place uh, against Palestinians in Gaza, which is a violence on top of decades and decades of, of, you know, structural violence and other massacres and whatnot of, of Palestinians, long-standing occupation, dispossession of Palestinians. Well, the, this is outpouring of pro-Palestinian sympathy on Canadian streets. Um, well, what's the response been from the pro-Israel groups? The response been is to basically say that anti-Semitism is on the rise. And, and you know, from their logic, I mean, I think much of what they're doing is just completely disingenuous. But from their logic, it, some of it's, it's not actually totally disingenuous. If you believe that criticism of Israel is anti-Semitic, then it's true. I mean, there is an anti-Semitism is on the rise, right? When there's five thousand people marching in Montreal against what Israel is doing, that's just like five thousand people, you know, uh, uh, engaging in anti-Semitism. So that that level, that's a you know, there's a sort of coherence to their that that kind of that logic. But but more generally, I think that what what's going on is just a very disingenuous. Um, we can't defend what Israel is doing, right? It's hard to defend. Anyone who really like sort of looking at it closely, it's clear that. Palestinians are oppressed and Israel is the oppressor. Um, and so what we want to do is we want, we want to change the channel. And how we change the channel is by saying, you know, there was some car on May 15th, there was some car that went into uh, Côte Saint-Luc and they had a Palestinian flag and they apparently were yelling at Jews and they, you know, this is a sign of, you know, anti-Semitism taking over and the Jewish community is all feared. And the, the, the mayor of Côte Saint-Luc, the mayor of Côte Saint-Luc actually uh, made a robocall, according to the one report in the Canadian Jewish News I saw, made a robocall to every uh, resident of, of, uh, of uh, Côte Saint-Luc to basically say, you know, are you concerned? Don't be concerned. Oh, apparently there was an Israeli flag. One of the, one of the, um, Public institutions in Côte Saint-Luc had an Israeli flag, and somebody, I guess, climbed up and ripped the Israeli flag. That's considered one of the big instances of anti-Semitism uh, uh, in Côte Saint-Luc in recent times. Um, and and so they did this robocall to all the people in the municipality, and it, you know, just trying to generate this whole discussion, this whole kind of feeling that this you know upsurge in pro-Palestinian activism is either designed to or just is. Uh, you know, anti-Jewish. 
So, so the question of, of, of anti-Semitism become, has been, become a really important one. And, and, and actually to go even one step further with that, the whole what happened with Jeremy Corbyn in Britain, right, where Jeremy Corbyn, a, you know, left-wing politicians, kind of his uh, leadership of the Labour Party in Britain, it was in large part sabotaged by these allegations, erroneous allegations of, of him being uh, uh, anti-Jewish, and and it's become a a, a tool to hit, to attack the left more generally, right? It's become uh, a way of uh, dividing, demoralizing, weakening the left. You know, partly because the left is pro-Palestinian, but I think also partly just sort of more. There's a more general dynamic playing out. So the whole question of of how how to deal with the you know allegations of anti-Semitism and stuff like that has become quite a important one to deal with and a, and a very difficult one for uh, to have you know honest and uh, and fruitful conversations about yeah usually a lot of the conversation on this on this topic is around like whether you think that you know israel should even exist or, or not and as someone who lives in um, I, I live i live in unsick right where there's a very large lebanese community uh, I, I went to high school with you know a, a Almost two thirds, I would say, of the student population was was Arab, mostly from Lebanon and Syria, right? And I have to say that that the um, that anti-Jewish sentiment was, you know, gen generally generalized, like you know, generalized in in that specific community to the extent that in the school it was like totally fine to, for example, you know, say that that um, you know, if you saw a Jew, you would kill them, or say that, or call people who are cheap a Jew, uh, you know, a Jew, uh, using Jewish as a, as, a, as a slur, right? Obviously, there was uh, whenever there would be, you know, those uh, the the conflict would heat up in Israel Palestine. You had, you know, Arabs are very nationalist people. You had people with their like um, Algerian flags or Lebanese flags or Assyrian flags uh, marching in the in the hallway, uh, chanting Harid Palestine Mil Ar No, it was Min Al Nar Il Al Bar, which means uh, Free Palestine from the river to the sea, right? And uh, that's often uh, something that is uh, very commonly used by um, by Palestinian, uh, you know, pro-Palestinian activists uh, who are Arabic, uh, which means, uh, you know, from the river to the sea. I actually want to want to ask you, as you know, a very prominent pro-Palestinian activist, do you believe that Israel has a right to exist? Well, uh, first, of all, I just want to respond to I mean, I think that that's uh, abhorrent that people either use Jew as a uh, euphemism for cheap or that you know, to kill Jewish or whatever. I, I hope, I presume that the people were doing it as abhorrent in and of itself, but hope yeah, that who were, you know, yeah. figuring things out for themselves and was this wasn't their... Uh, right, their, but uh, for just some context, is because the, Leb the Lebanese community, um, like, as I said, most of the children weren't born or ever lived in Lebanon is because in 1982, Israel, the IDF invaded Lebanon yeah, yeah, to yeah. fight against Hezbollah and uh, and other organizations and the PLO camps that were there. Uh, oh, sorry, Hezbollah was in 2006. In 1982, that was the, the PLO. And um, they, they uh, invaded Lebanon. And a lot of, you know, I know a lot of friends who, you know, equally Christians and, and Muslims doesn't matter. They they were um, even Druze, uh, Druze people. They, they were, um, you know, either killed, tortured or otherwise they were like victimized by the IDF and the Israeli soldiers. And the parents, you know, teach the children to hate. And you know they, the children they 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 you know proliferate that and in, when you're in an environment like in my high school where that ideology is generalized then it becomes okay to say those kind of things is what I was saying yeah and back back to back to what I was asking yeah. you do you believe that Israel is right to exist uh, I mean I, I don't even know what that means exactly like does 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 you know, Canada have a right to exist do I believe did South Africa you know apartheid regime have a right to exist I mean I I don't know like. 
no, I don't believe I don't I don't believe that a state based upon special rights for you know that 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 structurally, institutionally, legally um, marginalizes the uh, indigenous population that 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 you know has a right. Uh, so you know, do I don't I don't personally I I try to do everything I can to get out of some of these debates about one state, two state. Uh, um, I, what I focus on is how Canada has contributed to Palestinian dispossession, um, how to resolve the conflict. Like there isn't, there's never going to be uh, proper justice, just like there's never going to be proper justice to uh, uh, First Nations here. Uh, I mean, there, you know, a whole process of, colonialism that 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 we can we can lessen how much we continue it and we can do some things to redress the historic injustices obviously to to say that you know all all uh, Jews in Israel or you know just uh, uh, that they should go back to Europe that's just an injustice on top of an injustice in a similar way to saying all that you know all non-indigenous people in Canada should you know, go back to wherever they came from. But no, I think that the racist nature of the uh, Israeli state doesn't have a right to to exist. Now, are there ways of can, may, may, keeping Israel as a as a uh, some form of safe haven for Jewish people around the world while allowing Palestinians to return? Right, the Palestinians who have the keys to their homes from 1948. Uh, yeah, I think there is a way of doing that. I think there are ways of uh, of you know maintaining things like the, uh, if not the um, the law of return that allows you know uh, Jewish people from anywhere in the world to go to Israel, but that provides some form of that, continue some form of that in terms of Israel as being a uh, a potential safe haven, and simultaneously redresses the profound injustices to Palestinians. But I don't think that you know states in general don't really have a right to exist or not to exist. Uh, Mr. Engler, I wanted to talk about a bit more on Canada's involvement in supporting like the Israel um, racist regime, as we we're talking about. So you you were talking about how Israel could act as a safe haven for uh, Jewish people around the world if they wanted to go to Israel. However, uh, right now what we see is Canada supporting Israel in terms of uh, arms. It's uh, also supporting some sort of almost uh, colonization of Palestinian lands through uh, organizations such as charities. So can you explain a bit how does uh, media cover up of the fact that Canadian is supporting Israel's regime and how does um, Canadian organization actually support the uh, regime itself? Yeah, I mean, current Canadian government supports Israel and, you know, innumerable different uh, ways you know two weeks ago it pulled out of a global conference against uh, un conference against racism because uh, previous conferences uh, had criticized uh, zionism it's voted against more than 50 resolutions of the un upholding palestinian rights it has a free trade agreement with israel that includes products produced in the uh, occupied uh, west bank as as uh, allows them to come into Canada as if they're just products of Israel. Um, there's, uh, you know, some military sales. There's uh, also Canadian military buying uh, weapon systems from Israeli companies. There's a whole um, 
research industrial fund between Canada and Israel, funded by the Canadian government uh, that subsidizes relationships between arms companies from the two different countries. There's just it just goes the list goes on and on about different ways in which Canada supports Israel. A couple of the important ones that I think get, don't get enough attention, um, uh, and just kind of point to how extreme that support is is, is the foreign enlistment. So there are um, Canadians who get recruited to go into the Israeli military. Now that Canada has something called the Foreign Enlistment Act. Which makes it illegal to uh, to recruit Canadians for another country's uh, another country's military, and um, and the for since the ni- since 1947 that has never been applied with regards to recruiting for for the Israeli military, uh, but to the point where the you know uh, groups like. Uh, 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 Federation CJA, Federation Combined Jewish Appeal, which is the main uh, Jewish umbrella organization in Montreal, and United Jewish Appeal of Toronto, uh, back in June of last year, they were promoting a webinar, which, which was titled uh, uh, Joining the IDF. And it was very explicit that the event was about how to join the IDF. Again, we have a law on the book that says it's illegal to recruit Canadians uh, for a foreign military. Uh, similarly, the uh, Israeli consulate in Toronto has been openly uh, recruiting um, for the Israeli uh, military, and uh, and then there's also you get you get into this different like at the level of like schools. There's like Jewish schools here in Montreal, Hebrew Academy that uh, does a whole bunch of things that looks like it's trying to induce uh, students to to join the uh, Israeli military, and then uh, Tannenbaum Chat and others schools in Toronto. Um, uh, so that's, that's an area and, 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 and from a media standpoint, so I've been involved in the campaign since October, um, actually before that, uh, where we launched a campaign against IDF recruitment in Canada with, um, a formal complaint, like a legal complaint with evidence submitted to the justice minister and a public letter signed by a number of prominent individuals like, uh, Noam Chomsky, Roger Waters. And uh, we've done a whole series of we've done a whole series of action alerts. We've done we we produced created this had this public letter created this legal uh, uh, submission, and uh, and we we uh, we shopped it around to different journalists to try to offer them a, a first go at writing a story about it. It was a fascinating experience because it was about like six or seven journalists uh, from the CBC, from Canadian Press who were interested expressed some some level of interest in in covering it and then never covered it so they would say oh yeah this is interesting maybe you know and they, i got to check it out with my editors i got to you know see what's possible and then they consistently came back ultimately it this was this took actually we actually waited a couple of weeks to 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 publish this public letter because we were shipping it around to different journalists ultimately le devoir um, actually published and actually published on the front page um, but it, it took going through uh, a whole bunch of different journalists. And of course, Le Devoir is, is you know, it's in French. It's, uh, it's much less influential on this issue, especially than, you know, CBC or Toronto Star or Global Mail. And since October, when we, when we published it, Le, Le Devoir did another story the next day after publishing the front page. And then a couple months later, uh, the Journal de Montréal did a story. Uh, about our campaign, but we've had a whole series of different initiatives. One, the most recent thing right now is there's a 
parliamentary petition that's been signed by more than 7,000 people uh, against Israeli military recruitment in Canada. And uh, anyway, so we've done a whole bunch of different things. And we've put out six or seven different press releases on this campaign and total silence. So we've, we've published, it's probably like 20 more, 30 articles published in left media outlets like Rabble, Electronic Intifada, Palestine Chronicle, Ricochet, uh, uh, Canadian Dimension. Um, so it's been widely, widely covered in pro-Palestinian and left-wing Canadian media. But the English language dominant media in the country, just complete silence complete silence and we've we've tried at it from so many different angles to try to get them to uh, to go with the story um and they just total refusal to to cover another issue uh that's somewhat related um is the whole question of charities and uh, i i believe that's the most important canadian uh support for israel more than is more than a quarter billion dollars uh, raised by registered canadian charities uh for projects in israel and registered charities, of course, can provide tax uh, receipts. So that means that the Canadian taxpayer is uh, is covering a uh, a proportion of those donations. 30-40% of the of the funds is is subsidized by the Canadian government. So that means that something in the range of 70, 80, 100 million dollars a year would be uh, potentially covered by Canadian taxpayers uh, for these donations. And they, they go to all kinds of different projects in Israel. Uh there's, you know, in and of itself, it doesn't really make sense that Canada would be, Israel now has a GDP of almost equivalent to Canada's GDP. So why is Canada providing subsidies? It's not, you know, this isn't a poor country, right? We're, why are we providing subsidies for aid projects in Israel? Why, like we're not doing that with Sweden or Japan or France uh, or in very, very limited amount. But then if you dig deeper, you find out that a whole bunch of these charities that, that are supporting projects in Israel they're actually supporting the Israeli military. That's explicitly contrary to the to charitable law. The Canadian uh, Canada Revenue Agency says you cannot support another country's military, but a whole bunch of the projects support either directly or indirectly the Israeli military. Additionally, um, the they support projects that are in the West Bank that are basically supporting Israeli settlements. That, according to this, is a bit of a little bit of a contested area, a bit more contested than the military one, but the position of the Canadian government ostensibly is that charities should not be supporting projects that are supporting settlements in the West Bank because the Canadian government officially doesn't believe that that's, that's legal and that those are illegal settlements. And um, so any charity supporting projects in the West Bank should lose its charitable status. Uh, yet there's a whole bunch of them that we know, like the Friends of Ariel University. Ariel University is a university in the settlement of Ariel, which is wi widely very controversial. Uh, it's supporting the settlement uh, university in the West Bank. So all those groups shouldn't shouldn't have their charitable status. Additionally, a Canada Revenue Agency says it, it promotes anti-racism. Well, there's groups like the Jewish National Fund that's an explicitly racist organization that you know doesn't allow non-Jews to use its property and, and excludes Palestinian citizens of Israel. So if you start looking at some of these charities, you find that I think a lot of them are either explicitly, certainly implicitly but even explicitly racist so they shouldn't have their charitable status for that reason alone so if you were to do a proper audit of the more than quarter billion dollars being raised for israel focused charities i think you'd find that a lot of them today 
uh, contravene Canada Revenue Agency guidelines. So they should be losing their charitable status or another, putting another way, what they're doing is illegal. It's contrary to registered charity uh, laws. So this is a whole question about that's completely off of the radar. The dominant media does not discuss this whatsoever about uh, how much money is being raised, uh, how that's being used, how it could, uh, it, 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 in many cases, explicitly and, and implicitly contravenes uh, uh, charitable guidelines. Right. And actually, I'm going to ask a question about uh, Human Rights Watch, okay? So Human Rights Watch recently, you know, said, well, not recently, but the Human Rights Watch found that Israel's conduct, its policies and uh, actions towards the Palestinian population, the West Bank and Gaza, have met the definition of uh, apartheid and persecution. There's, there, as I said, there's this uh, view, uh, like this, this diverging view between uh, like the Zionists and you know those who are uh, pro-Palestinian. So the the, the pro-Palestinian activists, you know, view Israel essentially as like a extension of settler colonialism in the Middle East, right? As this like Western implant, as you know, you mentioned Nasser earlier, he viewed it like that. Meanwhile, the, those who are Zionists say that no, we we are indigenous to that land. We are indigenous to the lands of Judea and Samaria. And we are returning to our rightful land, right? Furthermore, Canada and several other countries like Japan and the U.S. have designated Hamas, which is the elected government of the Gaza Strip, as a terrorist organization. So with all that in mind, uh, as Stephen A. Koch points out, for example, you know, who is on the Council of Foreign Relations, what is Israel supposed to do? Like, how is Israel supposed to defend itself? If and how is Canada supposed to act? If essentially, on like as far as Canada is concerned, Israel is is opposed to a terrorist organization in the Gaza Strip. You pointed out that the earlier on that the numbers, uh, you know, it's twenty, thirty, ten. What it is exactly? Uh, I guess about two hundred forty to twelve. I think it was so. 21, 22, 23 times more people killed by the IDF than the uh, than Hamas. Uh, and IDF is not on the Canadian terrorist list. Um, I think the whole Canadian terrorist list, that's one of the ways in which Canada enables the dispossession of Palestinians is by criminalizing much of uh, Palestinian political life. So that, you know, it's, it's, it's totally incongruent to have Hamas on the terrorist list and not have the IDF. And it's not just Hamas, it's probably the Front for Liberation of Palestine. I think it's, there's eight or nine Palestinian groups that are on, on Canada's terrorist list and the pro-Israel lobby is trying to, you know, add new ones constantly. Uh, they would like it to be that it's just, you know, all of Palestinian political life is illegal to have Canadian, for Canadians to have any contact. So that's part of changing Canada's pro-Israel policy is to uh, to change those uh, those dynamics. Now, in terms of Israel, I mean, Israel has, you know, before Hamas existed, Israel was dispossessing Palestinians. Before Hamas was existed, Israel was uh, killing Palestinians. I'm, I'm an atheist. Uh, Hamas is not it's not the political ideology that uh, that that I espouse. But when uh, you know you're occupying uh, the West Bank, when you're controlling the air and the sea and getting in and out of Gaza, you know, that Hamas uh, resists in whatever way Hamas resists in, you know, I mean, when there was March of Return protests where people were, you know, peacefully marching towards the uh, prison gates of Gaza, whatever that was a year, I guess, two years ago or 
so um you know israeli snipers were just you know taking out from from afar were just taking out the legs of medics including a canadian medic um and you know killing many and destroying the lives of many many more what are palestinians supposed to do what like what they just they just just accept the fact that they're caged in gaza and and that's just their lot and and nothing can be done i mean that that doesn't that doesn't you know human beings don't tend to to accept that forever so you know firing rockets across you know residential areas of israel is that do you know is that do i like that no i don't think i mean i don't think anybody who's uh who has a humanist impulse likes the idea of, of rockets being fired in you know residential areas but i mean what do you what do you, what do you do right like israel has you know look at just look at simple statistics right israel's gdp is around 40,000 plus gaza is like $900 you know it's like 40 50 times higher uh, israel is a nuclear armed country with this massive high tech weaponry I mean, we're talking about like pretty basic rockets from Gaza. I mean, Israel can just phone in to uh, buildings in Gaza and say, oh, okay, you know, you got an hour and then we're going to blow your whole building up. The imbalance of power is just so out of proportion. And, uh, you know, most people who live in Gaza are, are, were driven from their home in 1948, right? Most of them are refugees from current day Israel. And, you know, it's... Uh, yeah. So, so no, I don't, I don't mean, I, I think Israel needs to end the siege of Gaza. Israel needs to end mm. its occupation of West Bank. Israel needs to offer some form of redress for the uh, Palestinian refugees. I mean, that's what Israel needs to do. It needs to you know, stop and, and stop killing and stop its oppression. Mm, actually, about, about um, concerning Hamas, right? So Hamas, as it is, it's like a double-edged sword in terms of it's, it's how, how it, faces Israel, it's a more aggressive organization compared to the Palestinian Authority, which, you know, people see as basically like an extension of, of Israel. So so Hamas is kind of seen as like this defender of Palestinians and, you know, as Palestinians, you know, they, they elected Hamas to the, to the government. But at the same time, what I've really been, have, had had trouble uh, reckoning with is like here here in the in the West, um, I'm not talking about liberals, but like the genuine left, like those who are, you know, so, uh, call themselves socialists, have, you know, sided with um, the Palestinian side. Hamas is an Islamic fundamentalist Sunni organization. Uh, how, how how does that work? Like, how, how how can you, like, reckon, like, how how does the ideological reckoning work, like, being, like, on the same side as, like, a fundamentalist Sunni organization? Yeah, I mean, I, like I said, I don't, I don't, I'm an atheist, right? But, but, I, but. Hamas is, is also why people in why Palestinians voted for Hamas, I think, is in large part because it provided some form of greater resistance than 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 the Palestinian Authority that was a you know subcontractor of, of Israel's occupation. So I don't think that uh, opposing what Israel's doing in Gaza is is a it means uh, promoting Hamas. I don't think that that's what that that means at all. I, I think Hamas is a you know is a legitimate actor. I don't think Hamas should be on Canada's terrorist list. I think that's that's outrageous. I mean if you're gonna have Hamas on the terrorist list and you definitely need to have the IDF on the terrorist list because it's contributed to way more killing than Hamas has. But uh, I can I can wish that Palestinian resistance was all done in the way that fit my preferred public relations perspective from sitting here in Montreal. But what, what is that? Like, that doesn't mean anything, you know? Like, there's a reality that people in Gaza live and experience and, 
influenced by and all, all kinds of things that, you know, Hamas is of that. For a long period, Israel enabled Hamas or because it saw strengthening Hamas as a, weak, a way to weaken the secular Arab nationalism of, of the PLO, right? So it was sort of, you know, allowed Hamas to, to you know, establish itself. And even today, right, like, you know, Netanyahu is kind of almost in some form of indirect alliance with Hamas, where it serves his purposes to have to be able to demonize Hamas and say the bad Hamas. Uh, so he doesn't want to crush, completely crush them in, in Gaza, but, he, but keep them kind of weak and don't let them get strong enough to be in, you know, really any threat. So that's, I think, so, you know, part of the dynamic, the political dynamic playing out there. But I, I think those those things are all secondary to the broader issue of of if fundamentally this is a, a European colonial project that needs to be stopped and it needs to be, like I said, again, you know, there's never going to be some full justice because to try to get some full justice to Palestinians would have an, create another injustice. Um, but you can uh, you can greatly uh, you can stop the thrust of the injustice and uh, and provide some form of redress for, for the historical injustice. Yeah. And as a last question, I mean, since we're coming to the end now, let's talk. You talked about about NATO uh, a lot during this this interview. So let's talk about like potentially adding Israel to NATO. So in a special report by the NATO Association of Canada, uh, Israel is considered as a potential member for NATO. And in the past, Israel and NATO have had close uh, cooperation, such as uh, opening a liaison office in NATO's headquarters in Brussels in 2016 and the ongoing Israel participation in NATO military exercises. Do keep in mind that recently, uh, one of the big accomplishments uh, before Trump left office of uh, informed policy has been the Abraham Accords, right? Uh, where several um, Arab countries, uh, Gulf monarchies, and uh, Egypt has already had normalized relations with um, Israel, but you know, Sudan and uh, Saudi Arabia, like they all normalized their relations with Israel and opened diplomatic ties. So, what do you think this tightening relationship between Israel and NATO? means for the Middle East, and, and how will this relationship impact the relationship between Israel and uh, other Middle Eastern countries and Palestine? Yeah, I would be a little surprised if Israel f- was to formally uh, join NATO. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's bad for Palestinians, it's reflective of, of uh, Israel strengthening its hand. Israel is a hub of high-tech weaponry. Right, so a lot of NATO countries and a lot of countries outside of NATO want to. Uh, part of the reason why they they've developed better relations with Israel is because they uh, they can purchase drones and other uh, uh, other weaponry from Israel. That's that's that they see as uh, helpful, useful. So so the the you know military component Israel promotes its weaponry. Right, it's like it's field tested. Right, we get they get to every every couple of years they get to test these things out on. Palestinians in Gaza or, or the West Bank, and uh, and that's you know good for a mark from a marketing standpoint for weaponry. It's it's good to be able to to claim that and to show that how the you know the weaponry has been employed. But uh, but yeah, I mean I think I think at one point Canada was uh, was actually the contact point between uh, Israel and NATO. I'm not sure if that's still the case. But uh, but yeah, I mean I think. NATO, there's a more general question about NATO, which is that NATO shouldn't, you know, we should be, Canada should be withdrawing from NATO and, and the whole expansion of NATO is a, is a, is a negative development. And, you know, it's, it's just a club of, uh, 
of you know militarist U.S. led club that that is uh, you know it's 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 supposed justification of the Cold War with the Soviet Union is you know long long past and and NATO just keeps getting uh, getting more and more uh, significant and important, uh, which I think tells us a lot about what NATO was you know always about. But yeah, certainly uh, Israel joining NATO would be a, a step in the direction of uh, strengthening the sort of militarist outpost that that israel represents all right well thank you very much that was a really long and very fruitful interview and uh it was great being your your host for today uh well i guess co-host but um you know henry lee was uh was on the sidelines yeah you were like like yeah (laughs) yeah well thank you for coming uh on the henry lee show today well, actually, uh, you know, uh, on, a, on a more listen on, on, on a casual fashion, aside from the eleven books you wrote, which will be in the, in the description, uh, I mean, they're very big brain reads. So make sure that you're uh, you're, you're prepared to read them because uh, they're quite a read, uh, all of them. Uh, but do you have any other like book books that you should you want to recommend to to our audience? Oh, just books in general. Uh, yeah, uh, like like what's your bookshelf look like actually? Uh, well, I don't have that uh, that much of a bookshelf because I mostly take the the books uh, from the the library. But uh, I mean, uh, uh, there's a new book called Canada in the World in the World uh, by Tyler Shipley that just came out. Good book to look at uh, on um, on uh, foreignpolicy.ca, which is the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute's website. We have a whole list of the best books on Canadian foreign policy. There's probably uh, 25, 30 books there. Um, so people can check that out at foreignpolicy.ca on on uh, around uh, Canadian foreign policy. So, all right. Well, thank you. That was very very nice having you, and um, uh, we hope to to see your uh, continued work. And uh, when does your next book? When is your next book coming out? If you want to do a little plug here. Uh, yeah, it's called uh, "Stand on Guard for Whom: A People's History of the Canadian Military," and it's uh, should be out in about uh, six weeks. All right, all right. I'm a sucker for books. I might pre-order it. So, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to listen. I hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as we did during the interview. If you liked this episode, learned something, or just want to help out a bunch of students, please leave a review, write a comment, and share this on social media. If you are listening to this on YouTube, please subscribe and write to us in the comments. All the books and other resources recommended by the interviewee are in the podcast description slash video description depending on your platform. And depending on when you see this, you might be able to use our affiliate link to purchase them. The Marianopolis Addendum podcast is actively seeking local sponsors here in Montreal. So if you are interested, please contact us at the email linked in the description. All the profit generated by this podcast will go back to fund our club's activity. If we have any surplus, they will be donated at the end of every month to a local charity. This episode was edited by Min, and the artwork is done by Camilla Huang. The producers and guests associated with this episode may express their opinion, but this podcast does not support any political parties. We only aim to bring different perspectives on different issues through the free exchange of opinions and ideas. We look forward to seeing you at our next broadcast. Cheers!